Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is the COO of Boomi, Chris Port. Chris is responsible for the support, services, success, and strategy functions within the company. Chris led the Dell acquisition of Boomi in 2011 and was responsible for the company's integration and growth post-acquisition. Previously, Chris was a general manager within Dell Software's system management business unit, where he was one of the first team members when the organization was formed. Chris brings a range of experiences to Boomi with his career spanning software, corporate strategy, corporate development, operations, and finance. Chris was also a senior manager at Kurt Solomon Associates, a global consultancy focused on the retail and consumer product sectors, and spent a year living abroad in Japan. Chris holds a Bachelor of Science degree in management from Georgia Tech and an MBA from Duke University. So Chris, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks for having me. I guess it, it makes sense now why you're based in Austin. The fact that you were working with Dell, is that what brought you to Austin? That is what brought us here just over 19 years ago. Nice. It's been a great ride. It's, um, yeah. It feels like a pretty booming city right now. Is all the news that we're reading accurate? Is it just like, you know, one direction, all the traffic coming into Austin, no one leaving? That's what it feels like right now. It has definitely changed in our 19 years. Uh, you know, and I think what we're seeing now, it just, it, it feels like, you know, some people feel like it's the quote unquote peak. Uh, if you go and look around construction and you look at a lot of the companies, whether it be Tesla, uh, and if you're ever in Austin, I strongly suggest taking the toll road and looking at the new Gigafactory. It is, it's awe inspiring to see, but, but you look at all the construction and just companies that are now, instead of just moving divisions here, really setting up shop in terms of headquarters here. Uh, it feels like we may actually be on the tip of the iceberg in terms of growth, but yeah, it's a great time to be in Austin. That's awesome. I'm I'm curious about about kind of going back into your background and when you did your MBA, you know, 19, 20 years ago, probably, what was it like um, coming out of that MBA and into the business world? And do you think you still use a lot of the tools that you learned back in your MBA today? And if so, which ones are you really kind of leaning on heavily? That's a great question. Um, you know, look, for, for me, business school was actually a bridge out of consulting. Uh, I stuck to my guns. Uh, mildly proud of that. A lot of people go to business school to get into consulting or banking. I was, it was a bridge out for me. Um, you know, to me, the skill sets, when I think about it, look, I, I, you know, I never looked at business school necessarily as what I would call academically rigorous in the sense of, you know, when coming from a Georgia Tech and I think about the, the course load I had and and what that meant. And it was a totally different experience for me coming from high school to, to that. It was kind of a shock to my system in terms of the academic rigor uh, that lasted for the better part of four years. And to me, business school is more about life rigor because there's so many things you can do in a day, whether it be obviously, you know, studies and in your course load, but also all of the networking opportunities, all of the different clubs, you know, all of the different companies that are coming to campus in a given day to kind of have a discussion with, with, with students to, to learn so that you can learn about those companies, you know, they can learn about you, et cetera. So in a given day, there's 36 hours worth of things you could do in say a 17 hour day. So you've really got to prioritize. And to me, that is by far the skill set out of everything that I learned. Now, case studies and kind of thinking through how and watching how other 
executives thought through business cases, whether they be financially related or marketing related or sales related or product related. I think all of that comes to bear. So you get this great broad swath of, of different ways to think through business problems from different lenses, um, which to me was invaluable. You know, the network I built, you know, at the school and beyond was invaluable. But really, ultimately, it was learning how do you think about how, what are you going to attack in a given day that optimizes the day? Because you, you know, you know, better than I do, kind of given your background, but there's no lack of things or no lack of opportunities to focus on in a day. But my challenge is where do I make the most sense? Mm-hmm. And that was probably the biggest takeaway from business school that I've, that, that I think I've leveraged kind of throughout the last, call it 19 years. And and you're not old, but you're older in that, um, you know, when you were at university, the internet was just kind of opening up, I would guess, correct? Yeah. So Absolutely. You, were, you were still in that kind of education phase um, where we needed to be the smartest people in the room because we couldn't access the information. Whereas nowadays, it seems like we no longer need to be the smartest. We need to be connected to all the smartest. Do you see a shift now in uh, the people that you're hiring inside of Boomi? That's a great question. And the answer is absolutely yes. Look, I think you look for people that really understand a how to access information in the digital kind of world um, that, that are much more what I'll call tool centric and digitally savvy. Um, you know, so so I think we really probe on that, uh, you know, and then but but I still think that other thing is the ability to, at least in my lens, you know, in my purview, is, is people that can synthesize and then take all of that information to synthesize and then make business decisions. Because I still think that is a unique skill set that you know you really have to you know search to find. Um, that that we still, you know, I, I think in, in this job environment right now, it's just I've never seen a job market uh, like we're seeing today, at least in technology, it is it is incredible. So finding that skill set. Uh, a, it's getting tougher and B, it's getting more expensive because it's definitely a, um, a candidate's market. But, um, but, but to me, you know, I think it's a great perspective. I think, you know, back in the day, kind of who you knew and, and, and we'd, we'd stare a lot at your background. And I think that's really evolved to, to get much more tangible and give me a real perspective of the tool sets you're familiar with. How do you get at data? you know, how technically savvy are you? I think that just becomes more imperative every day. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I want to go back to, to the Dell component, and then I'll, I'll kind of fast forward later into talking about the candidates and, and interviewing and recruiting as well, because I want to go down that rabbit hole with you. When you were with Dell, what are some of the key lessons and the key growth for yourself that prepared you to now be the COO over at Boomi? Yeah, well... You asked like about when I was in school. So you got to remember, so it's, you know, I was there literally during 9-11. So here we are on the precipice of the, the 20th anniversary. So that was the start of my second year, really unique time uh, to be in business school. So, you know, it was definitely, you know, beggars couldn't be choosers. So, you know, for me, what I was looking for was really simplistic. It got really basic really fast because, you know, you had firms rescinding offers, you know, if you remember, this is like Enron, you know, just evaporating to a large degree when you think in the grand scheme of it overnight, just a really unique time to be in the job market. So for me, I was really simple. I was like, look, I'm just looking for something that, A, gets me out of consulting. I didn't want to be on the road. Uh, I was I was newly married, um, you know, newly thinking about a family. So really wanted to, you know, to have some balance in that sense. But then I needed, I needed something that kept me on that steep learning curve. 
because uh, that's what I loved about consulting. I loved everything about consulting in terms of the job. I love the pace. I love being around really smart humans all day, every day. I love being challenged. I love new problems. You know, even though I was focused on consumer products and retail, I mean, it was every company was a new problem that you were trying to solve. Um, and I loved everything about it. I just absolutely hated the travel. And I hated the fact that you never really owned anything at the end of the day. You just moved on to the next, the next client. And um, so I needed something that was really fast paced. that kind of kept me on that learning curve. And that's what drew me to technology. Um, you know, it was really, it was, it was basically that simple. And that's where I really focused my, my, my recruiting efforts were on technology firms. Um, and that was a good time. I mean, yeah, the, even a lot of those firms were, were going through changes given that, that period in time, but, but, but it was really, you could argue the precipice of this kind of hyper growth phase that came off the, you know, kind of that 0102, you know, kind of lull really kind of like accelerated from there. And, and to me, what, what Dell's done for me is it's, you know, and then people that we've acquired, we've, you know, I've been part of really small acquisitions. Obviously, Boomi was 40 people when we bought them. So, and they always laugh when you say that Dell's a quote unquote entrepreneurial culture. When people ask, like, what's the culture like? And it's like, well, it's entrepreneurial. It's like, nah, <laughs> can it really be, you know, 60 billion, 70 billion, you know, now 90 plus billion, 100,000 plus people. How can a company like that really be entrepreneurial? And what I would argue is that, look, you know, the person at the helm, you know, is arguably one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time. And the constant thread through my entire career at Dell is there's always this willingness to challenge everything. Um, and how do we become better? That's why M&A became, I think it was like a really easy part of the DNA to accept M&A as we started to go through that acquisition bins that ultimately led me to Boomi. Um, but, but, but challenging everything. And, and it also had a willingness. I know I wouldn't say it's formal, but for people to move around. So if you wanted to go do something, I mean, I went from hardcore operations, like literally working in a factory when Dell used to do manufacturing, you know, here in the States to literally my next job was in Dell Ventures. So, I mean, I, I don't know if there could be much more of a 180, but that's, that's really far afoot. And then went into a sales segment and did some kind of what I'll call pseudo sales roles. Then went back into corporate strategy. But Dell has a tolerance for all of this. It's a really unique company. I'm not saying it's that's the fastest path to glory in terms of promotions and all that fun stuff and, and career, you know, as you think about a career. But but I, I've kind of I've skated towards challenges versus getting fixated on becoming a an operations VP or a finance VP or something like that. I've always I've always tried to focus on, you know, I'd say two things. A just hairy problems. I mean, I like solving problems. It's what keeps me, it keeps me going. It, it gets me up out of bed in the morning. It's what excites me. It's why I absolutely this is the greatest job I've ever had, you know, for the last five and a half years. Um, I think, it's all I think about what, solving problems. Well, I think what you're, what you're showing is that the, and, and this is actually, I think, critical for anyone who wants to be a COO of, of larger organizations is they need to be able to work in all these cross-functional areas. They need to do the hairy problems in all the different business areas and not just stick into one silo, which is, is interesting. When you're in a smaller company, they don't, that doesn't tend to happen as much. So, and Dell was, Dell was arguably, I mean, one of the hottest tech companies on the planet back in early 2000s. I remember when I was like, first got my first Dell and I could throw my IBMs out the window and I was super excited. And that was around 2001 as well. So, you know, you're at, you're at Dell and, and you jump over from Dell to a 40 person company, or let's talk about the acquisition before I talk about you moving over. Cause when you led the acquisition of a 40 person company, first off, what was it like? 
Um, you know, what lessons did you have in buying a smaller company that our listener can learn from? And then if you're a smaller company looking to sell, I've got four of my clients right now that are working with an M&A firm to sell their companies. What lessons can you get them on how to get acquired and how to make the transaction process easier? So from both sides. It's mm, a great question. Uh, well, I'd say on the buy side, you know, look, you know, I had the opportunity to, to basically study a handful of acquisitions that Dell had done in the SaaS space that for, for a myriad of reasons didn't go, you know, didn't go according to the business plan. So, you know, had some things to build upon, but, but my two biggest takeaways were really simple. A, this was 40 people moving inside a 100,000 person company and we need to incubate. It was actually incubate, don't integrate. That was kind of the tagline, um, which for the, and every acquisition is different. So that's something I've also kind of like, I, I would argue gained a perspective you know, on over the last call it 10 to, 10 to 12 years of doing M&A is everything's different. But in this one, it was absolutely incubate, don't integrate, leave it alone, leave the stack alone in terms of the software stack. We're not going to try to shove their software stack into Dell's stack. Obviously, A, it was a stack built for hardware, not SaaS. B, built for a you know, multi, multi, multi-billion dollar company, not for a 40-person company. So, um, But then also, don't break it apart. Leave it all up under uh, a CEO slash GM, um, and let's incubate this. And then two... Let's get it on a glide path with a strategy that, that kind of sets the stage for the first, call it 18 to 36 months. Um, and, and that's what I really leaned into uh, because it's all about momentum, you know, from an M&A perspective. When you, buy, when you buy a company, how quickly you get out of the gate is so imperative to longevity and early success. So, so those were the two things on the buy side. On the sell side, that that's a, I I don't know how to you know I'm certainly not the the person I, I've never sold a company so I'm not savvy enough. Look, I, I would tell you a couple things. A and and I don't think there's any you know big secrets here, but but being able to really demonstrate product market fit is just an imperative. Um, and then what is your cultural fit with the buyer? I I I, t- I tell you if the buyer is serious about the longevity of the asset they're buying the technology, the company, whatever it may be, then that cultural fit is imperative. Um, and people like underplay it, they really do. But, but, but to me, it's like, don't lose sight of that. And that goes both ways. I mean, right now it's a seller's market. So I, I think your friends are probably in you know, good, good positions depending upon what space they're in. So, you know, because money's still so cheap. So, you know, they have an opportunity to find the right fit for them. And I would tell you, you know, we've, uh, in, in both, you know, in, in two of the, m as I've done, it was a competitive perspective. And while the dollars meant something, uh, you know, if you want to think about like a quote unquote bidding war, at the end of the day, it also a lot, both, both of them came down to who do we feel, meaning the other side of the table, who did they feel had a better fit and where would they feel comfortable trying to grow this company? Um, and again, that, that's very company dependent. Sure. Sometimes owners want to exit and they just want to get out and they're just looking for the biggest dollar. But, 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 but at least when we've thought about it and as we do acquisitions so much in technology, it's who am I, who am I acquiring? Who's going to be part of the team here? Yeah. Um, and so we're really looking for people that, that want that and want to be a part of something, at least for a while. So um, when, when you were forever. doing, when you were doing the acquisition, did you know that you were going to end up over as a part of the leadership team of then, you know, integrating it or, or innovating and, and growing the company? In terms of the, yes, uh, it's what I wanted to do. It wasn't a given. I mean, I, I was in the corporate strategy group. I led the, you know, 
the identification and then ultimately the due diligence of Boomi. But but at the time, Dell had propped up this role called the integration executive, and um, and 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 I'd had a friend, you know, a couple of people that I knew had done it, and it really interested me. But but to be honest, it was also one of those things. So we we do the acquisition, and I raise my hand. I want to go do this, and everybody that's kind of in my whatever you want to call it mentor network is telling me absolutely don't do it. You're 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 zigging when you should be zagging. You just convince the ELT, the executive leadership team of Dell to buy this tiny asset, you won. So go take advantage of this, lean into your strategy experience. There was promotable roles, a couple that had been offered to me. But my perspective was like, look, I've effectively done strategy now my entire career. I need to go operate because I ultimately want to be a GM. I really, really, really want to be a GM, go run something at some point. And And I well, now I've academically studied software, if you will. I've never actually been inside the guts of a software company. So I want to go do this, roll up my sleeves and really figure out what this is all about. So, you know, threw my hat in the ring and, and ultimately was the integration exec for Boomi. And, you know, probably the best decision I've ever made in my my professional career, you know, hands I, down. Because it, I got to see everything right out of the gate. And it's like dog years when you're inside the middle of an acquisition. Yeah, we're going to talk about the the whole growth from the 120 when you got into the 1,200 approximately people now. I've got one final question on Dell that's always intrigued me. I don't, I'm curious if you had any visibility to it. Back in the day, I think, was it Kevin Rollins or Kevin Rollings or something was the COO to Michael? Did, yep. did, did you have any visibility to the Kevin and Michael partnership? Because they were really strong for a period and then they were really volatile. But there was, a, did you get any visibility to them as an, as an amazing partnership? No, no, no real insight. That was, that was exactly when I joined corporate strategy um, was as Dell was effectively making a transition, um, you know, from kind of that partnership to, to when Michael stepped back in to take yeah. the company over. And, and, and you know, and I, I, so I have zero insight into that. You know, obviously, you know, kind of where we've now gone, I guess, gosh, that was, you know, whatever that would have been 12, 13 years ago. Um, and you look at the growth trajectory and kind of how the company's really evolved and become much more diversified over time. Um, but but okay. no real insight into there. But I was writing, you know, I was in corporate strategy. So kind of a front row seat for the whole thing as it evolved and Michael stepped back in. Which was well, it's interesting because they were they were one of the partnerships that when Brian and I were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we were trying to find some really strong CEO, COO, kind of the yin and yang. And, and they were one that was identified for us. So we, we started to, to look at, at a bunch of different ones and they were they were one of them. Let's talk about about Boomi. First off, what is what does Boomi do? Can you give it to us in layman's terms, and then let's talk about the growth that you um, really took the company through? Sure. I, I mean, simplistically, you know, we're the connections company, so we connect primarily. When you think about Boomi, it's it's integration, it's middleware, um, and we connect applications. You know, is is our typical starting point for companies, and now that could be a database, it could be a myriad of things, but connecting. Salesforce to SAP. So you need those two systems to talk. You need your CRM to talk to your ERP. Um, and we're the glue that makes that happen. In a very modern SaaS-like, very high time to value, high productivity way. Drag and drop. Um, so, you know, great, you know, you know great example, um, you know, would be a company like a Peloton, you know, that brings us on board you know, to effectively, you know, stitch their ERP to their CRM, um, you know, as they're kind of going on this crazy growth trajectory, ultimately starts to leverage us for, you know, but then we grow out from that, right? We do things like EDI. So, you know, 
super old technology, we modernize your EDI stack um, and now allow you to connect to your partner network. Um, you know, and then we grow into things like API and allow you to connect to individual end users in a very governed way. Um, so it's all ultimately about connections, whether it's applications, data, people, processes, it's all about connections in a modern, you know, high productivity way. Right. So then you've, you've grown the organization now from 120 to 1200 people inside of Dell. What do you think the core reasons why you were able to get that growth that didn't involve maybe money that Dell was giving you? Like, you know, they don't, you, you can't just grow because they throw money. You can also fall apart if that happens. So why were you able to grow successfully? Yeah, well, I, I will say this. I mean, A, you know, uh, we, we've had an industry leading product now for effectively the entire time that that Boomi has been a part of part of Dell. And certainly, you know, since Gartner's released their magic quadrants, we've always been in the top right. So, um, you know, we've got we've got great product market fit. Uh, we've got an amazing product, an amazing product organization. And we've always leaned in to making sure we're ahead of that innovation curve, because just like any space, it's insanely competitive. There's always someone new coming in. Um, but, but we have just this amazing opportunity and candidly, we're just now like on the precipice of a lot of these macro trends that we were kind of betting on five, seven years ago are really now coming to fruition, whether it be the explosion of data, the explosion of SaaS applications and kind of, you know, if you want to call that the hybrid environment explosion, you're now talking about a mass labor shortage that feels like it's, it's a wave that's about to crash down on the heads of a lot of people like me in terms of just finding people to be able to do things. And now you've got to think about the tool sets you're selecting, do they require a lot of people to maintain? Um, and, and that plays right into Boomi's sweet spot of high productivity, you know, call it low labor in terms of when you build out a middleware stack. So, so a lot of this is about product market fit. Um, that there was an investment angle to this because when Dell did the divestiture of EMC and the divestiture of Dell software, they excluded one asset there when they divested Dell software and that was Boomi. Uh, and because of that, we were given a lot more visibility, which can be good and bad, but it also really highlighted what the growth opportunity was. And it really did open up uh, the, the OPEX, the, 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 the spend envelope. So we were given a lot more investment, which did allow us to start, you know, because at the end of the day, the, the bulk of our investment is people. Um, and how do we grow out a proper global sales organization? How do we grow out a proper product and development organization? How do we grow out these organizations to really go focus on, what is an immense global opportunity for us to really go from 150 to 1200 and we're well on our way to 1400 to 1500 by the end of this year. So, um, but I think at the end of the day, a lot of this is just about the product and how we've just met all of these customer needs, you know, across the globe now kind of moving north of 17,000 customers. Um, and, and it's just really having a product that solves a very acute problem, which is just growing and exploding uh, in a very, very direct and, and high time to value way. So I'm, I'm curious how it's, uh, how it is working with some of the big organizations that Boomi's had to work with. My girlfriend was the head of engineering for Salesforce inside of Ticketmaster. And I know that she used um, Boomi there. And then also at another company, Internet Creations, which she, where she brought Boomi in. What's it like for, for your team working with these big organizations? How do you like prevent yourself from banging your head against the wall. I mean, it's, I've always been in the entrepreneurial world, but I find corporate hard to work with. It seems like there's a lot of people that'll say yes to projects because they don't want to say no. And then stuff can take so long. And 
and then you have all these needs from the external forces. Any lessons on for our listener on, on how to work with the bigger organizations successfully? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, we've learned our way through it, just like most, you know, companies that have gone from, you know, particularly in the SaaS or the B2B space that have gone from 41 to now 1,200 or, you know, 1,200 plus people, you know, we, we started in very much, call, I'll call it the, I, I wouldn't say mid-market, but call it the large mid-market um, uh, and, and have now kind of moved upward to disrupt a lot of those legacy players in the integration space. Um, you know, very typical play for a, a disruptive, you know, SaaS provider. And so we, we've definitely grown our way into those large environments like a Ticketmaster. Um, but, but I would tell you, you know, we've done a few things. A, you know, we've, we've really maintained our ability to, to have really good relationships with customers. Um, and we don't relax. I mean, we have a customer advisory board and, and these are huge logos that everybody would know that, that sit on our, our customer advisory board. Um, and to a person, you know, they all, they all say something. They say, one, one of the, your product's great. We love your product. It's, it's, you know, it allows us to do things and be insanely agile and we can do 10 projects in the time that it would take us to do two with your competitors. So we love all that. But the other thing we love about Boomi is you're just like, you're good people. Uh, and we, and A, your product does what it says, but B, you do what you say. And, and so we try to maintain that ability as we've scaled. And, and it's challenging um, because obviously you have to put process in place to go from hundreds of customers to 17,000 plus customers to go from the 150 to the 1200 team members, you've got to have a lot of process and technology that allows us to now scale to that next 17,000 customers. But we've really tried to maintain that customer relationship. And we do that out of the gate by really leaning into our success equation uh, and making sure that they have the resources out of the gate. Even if a sales maker thinks that, ah, I don't want to introduce professional services because it could be a hurdle to me getting the deal done. We, we try not to relax on the methodology. Once we know what that customer is trying to get done, we try to be very dogmatic on here's what you need to be successful. You know, trust us. You know, we've done this 17,000 times now. We, we know we have an equation and it may include, you know, you always have a success professional with you, but it may include leveraging this partner who's really good at doing this with you. It may include having our professional service team to help you do this. Uh, obviously support's always underneath that, but but it's trying to be as dogmatic as possible. And look, we're getting better every day. We're still not perfect at it and we never will be. But trying to be dogmatic on what the customer needs to be initially successful, because we know that for 60, 90, 180 days is so imperative to the longevity with us. Um, and that's, I think that's most SaaS companies. But if we can make this successful early, we're going to have a long, long journey with them and we're both going to grow together. So we just we try to be dogmatic out of the gate. I love this idea of the, the customer advisory board. I remember Michael Dell used to read the tea leaves. He used to listen to all of his customers and read all their comments. How do you work with a customer? I, I had a franchise advisory board in all the franchise companies I've built, but how do you listen to the customers? What do you bring to the customer advisory board? How do you use that, um, that tool or that kind of system you've put in place? Yeah, I mean, we really lean into them. I mean, you know, they're all obviously under NDA, but but we share the the kind of gory details of Boomi with them. I mean, we don't we don't leverage it as a place for affirmation. We leverage it as a place to like, look, give us blunt feedback. Wow. Um, and and so we'll do a few things. We will throw, uh, you know, complex 
you know, issues that we're dealing with and how we're thinking about moving through it, uh, you know, to them, we will absolutely talk to them, not about an asset, but about spaces. These are spaces that we're contemplating moving into, you know, from an M&A, a build versus buy type of discussion. Uh, what would you think if Boomi came to you offering this? And we'll never focus on a space, right? We'll kind of do a little bit of a menu of we'll bring in three spaces. Obviously, one of them we know in the back of our mind we're we're really focused on, and we likely have a company that we're focused on, if not multiple. But 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 kind of tease it out from them and get their perspective of like, yeah, I mean, if you came to me with that solution, that would absolutely be of interest. Or no, I don't I don't think I would really look to Boomi to solve that problem for me. So. Um, you know, and, and then anywhere, it just kind of drag them into operational things, you know, oh. like for me, but, but we were very purposeful and like, look, this isn't like a, a, an audience to, to make sure we're getting affirmation that we're doing everything great. You know, we'll bring in the actual metrics and say, look, you know, for me personally, how are we doing from a success, from a support? How is this going? You know, have individual discussions, but, but we try to leverage it. And, and I think, look, I think they would tell you that it's been, it's been a valuable experience for them too. Um, so, and they're very, very, they're very crisp on their feedback. Yeah. It's amazing. I love that you bring them some of the big hairy ones too. And you really open the kimono. So you've talked a couple of times about how hard the labor market has gotten and how tough it is to find great people right now. Um, I'm curious what you're doing at Boomi to attract great people and then secondly, and, and this is a, a bit of a bizarre question that I don't, I've never even asked this before, but what would a smaller company do to attract people when they're competing against Boomi? So if I was a 40 person company in Austin and I'm trying to hire the same person you are, how do, what do I do to get them so that you don't? Because the small companies can't pay like, you know, what the Facebooks and Googles can pay. Yeah, I'm, I don't want to arm my competitors with too much uh, uh, building blocks, but um... You know, I think I think for Boomi, we're trying to do a couple things. A, we're trying to really lean into what our culture is because it is such, in my opinion, it is such a huge differentiator. And when you look at our attrition, and obviously a lot of people at a lot of companies are looking at attrition data right now as you're kind of seeing the great resignation happen, you know, uh, across the world. And I think the pandemic has really accelerated that. And I think once we get back to some, whenever and, and whatever it looks like, some sense of quote unquote normalcy, I do think that'll help slow some of this down. Um, but 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 I think we're trying to really lean into our culture and who we are. It's been such a strong point for us for so long. And our attrition data has always been incredible relative to our competitive set, uh, you know, in a very good way. We just don't see a lot of attrition. Um, and even in this kind of period of, of somewhat elevated attrition, it's still, you know, based on all the benchmarks we're staring at, world class. So, but we're really trying to lean into like what Boomi is uh, and, and kind of like what you're joining is a key differentiator because what we're finding is like, look, the, the money can be good, you know, equities and other thing that obviously as we get on the other side of this transaction, we're excited about, you know, and actually having boomy equity. But, but at the end of the day, a lot of the companies offer packages kind of start to look the same. You all roughly start to learn what everybody is offering each person. So now the next question is, is like, how do I kind of prove to you that this is a great place to come build your career? So we're really trying to lean into A, like, look, it's a market leader, but B, there's just something bigger that's happening here. I mean, this is a real, you know, I've never been part of something like this. I don't take it for granted. You know, th these opportunities just don't come along that often. You know, a lot of having bud, you know, done a fair amount of M&A, a lot of people say we're, 
we're always on the, you know, we're almost at a hundred million ARR balance, you know, or we're almost at a billion dollar valuation. And it's amazing that every single SaaS company you meet at times seems to be almost at those benchmarks. And you know, we just blown by all that stuff and it just doesn't happen that often. So, and, and we think we're literally on the next, you know, kind of brink of the next evolution of this whole thing as we get on the other side of the acquisition to go to another whole gear of growth. When you really look at these macro trends, so really just trying to lean into that story. And when I think about differentiation, I mean, to me, Cameron, it's like, look, I, I just think there, uh, there is a reality though. I think there are people that they want to go work at 40 person companies and, and look, 40 person companies are different than 1200 person companies. And I will fully acknowledge that. I mean, we try every day to, how do we keep that entrepreneurial vibe going? How do we keep that edge you know, I think every company to some degree kind of like works through that in their own way as you grow, which is how do you keep that edge? You know, how mm -hmm. do you remain paranoid candidly? How do you continue to disrupt and constantly look at yourself as, you know, the quote unquote little guy, you know, to go punch above your weight. So, um, but, but to some degree, it's like, look, if someone's looking for that small environment, they're going to go there. Um, and if someone's looking for something that's obviously a little bit more at scale, uh, you know, that that's, you know, years ahead of that, then I think that's a different environment, a different opportunity. I like that you kind of quoted Andy Grove there, the, only the paranoid survive. <laughs> um, I, you didn't quite, but I think that's where you were thinking. Is well, Dell going to... exactly is, what I was thinking. Yeah. Is Dell going to spin off Boomi into a, its own public company at some point or? Well, I mean, so so Dell's announced the divestiture of Boomi. So we were, uh, they announced, you know, a couple months ago, we were, uh, or we are in the we're still in the process of closing. So it, it was announced in May that we'll be, uh, we were bought by Francisco Partners and TPG. Uh, so two of the preeminent private equity firms in the world um, focused on technology. Uh, and that deal will close sometime, you know, call it in the next, you know, one to two to three months. Um, so we're still, we're still part of the Dell family. Um, and it's been an incredible ride, but, but I would tell you that we're, we're equally as excited about what the next, the next phase holds and, and and now really working and partnering with people that all they think about all day, every day is software. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, you know, everybody that, that we're working with on that side of the fence. Now that's, that's all of their experience, both from kind of a deal side as well as an operational side. So, so excited about this next you know part of the journey. And then I'll be in part of a, a portfolio of companies, you know, from a Francisco partner. And then when you look at the TPG kind of their growth equity arm, which is what we're part of, um, I mean, you look at these portfolio companies and they're world-class software companies and, and learning from them about how they've really optimized their growth. So really excited. How about your growth? Where have you, um, you know, optimized your growth as a, as a leader? Yeah, look, I would say it's kind of, to some degree, it's, um, and then when you, you know, when you've gone from 150 to 1200, we're, we're still at that size where we're, what I'll call, we're all player coaches. You know, I have kind of what I'll call a pseudo board meeting tonight, um, and I've been knee deep in Excel models and uh, was was just combing through Gainsight a minute ago, trying to understand some stuff on some key customers. So, um, you know, so so I'm really in the weeds at moments, but tonight I'll I'll be kind of in the boardroom, if you will, you know, having a discussion at that level. But but for me, what what I've probably learned the most, to be honest, is is really kind of being a leader of people. Um, and, and what does that mean? How do you go? I mean, when I got here, my part of that 150 was probably 40-ish. Um, and my organization now is north of 400. Um, and, and, and so how I've kind of evolved and, and candidly put a leadership team in place, you know, over these five years, that's really allowed me to scale. 
and and having that you know i was listening to uh your podcast with uh harley finkelstein um you know from shopify and he didn't say this but it's that you know look there's a reality i don't care who they are you know maybe once you've done five of these gigs you could you could say this but we're all kind of learning on the job right and um and and you know i've certainly never led 400 person teams prior to boomy um but but the one thing I've learned is I've got to almost scare myself with the people I hire in the sense that, you know, I know I have people in place that whether it's support or professional services or success or, you know, uh, you know, sales ops, what, whatever it may be, these people have forgotten more about those functions than I'll ever learn. Right. Uh, and that's actually a great thing um, because they they scare me every day with their ideas and kind of how they think about the business. Um you know, I've learned how to push them, you know, and, and hopefully push the business forward, but they've allowed me to scale on a completely different level than I would have thought possible. And when I got here, because, you know, I think when you first become a leader and those teams grow, you're, you're trying to kind of maintain that touch with everything that you had your, your fingers on initially that over time is it's, it's literally an impossibility. So in having people that, you know, are so good at what they do, um, it's allowed me to scale. So I would think, you know, for me, that would be my biggest growth area by far um, is just really how I think about my team and how we think about leaders in general at Boomi and, and kind of building out a world-class leadership team. That's great. I love that. It's, um, I love that you you recognize as I've always said that we're kind of 16 year olds trapped in adult bodies. And it always feels like this is the biggest thing we've ever done every day. It just is a little bit bigger. Right? I met Harley when they were only about a 50 person company. I went into their yeah. offices in Ottawa and it's it's been incredible to watch their growth. But um, all right, I'm going to got one kind of final question before we get to sign off. I want to go back to you kind of graduating from Duke University. What advice would you give that, you know, 20 early twenties, Chris Port, what, what would you tell yourself that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known when you were a little younger? Um, it's a great question. Um, well, well, to some degree it would be, you know, articulate who you are and, and what you want to be. And I don't mean what you want to be in 20 years. I, I, I've always struggled with that, but but always have some type of three-year window that you're always kind of thinking about and stick to it as much as you humanly can. It gets so difficult as you get out there, whether, you know, when you're in business school, the money that the consulting firms or the banks throw at people, even for me, it was incredibly difficult to say no. Um, and, and to kind of come back and say, well, wait a minute, what, why, why did you go to business school? And mm. what, what were you? And, but, but it, it, you know, over time that, that only happens, you know, it, not every day, but it certainly happens at all these different moments in your career. And there's so much, e- there, you know, there's easy paths, you know, quote unquote easy, but but to go up and 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 get bigger roles and and quote unquote those promotions and all that fun stuff. But but really articulate and understand who you are and where you're trying to go, because ultimately that's the way to kind of maximize the, you know, you're sort of the handful of people that hit it big earlier, entrepreneurs that you know, know how to cash out and do that type of thing. But if you're not that person, and I certainly wasn't, um, it's really articulate who you are and that'll, that'll optimize kind of that 20, 30, 40 year career that most of us have, um, you know, as we think through it. And I would, I would really lean into that, that statement with myself 
you know, 20 years ago, because it's, it's one of those things I constantly remind myself of. Um, what exactly am I trying to get done here? Uh, forget, forget money or team or, or, or title or any of that. It's like, you know, what, what, what is getting me up every day, you know, to really kind of be excited and go solve problems. And that's what I kind of try to remind myself of and fall back on. So, um, and it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to stick to at times. Great. I love it. And I, I love that you've got kind of another three-year vision out in front of you probably as to where you're heading now with Boomi as you make this next transition. So Chris Port, the COO for Boomi, thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Cameron, I really appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.